Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin then with a story of volatility. The volatility appears to be on the front pages of most of the international newspapers. You don't really see it in the market in the United States. The VIX index very briefly traded with an 11 handle this morning. So where is the vol? I feel like it's 2017 again. Let's bring in Tobias Lefkovich, City Chief U.S. Equity Strategist. Good morning, Tobias. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. The front pages of most of the newspapers freaking out as they usually do, Tobias. Um, you don't see it in the market, do you? Not really. Um, you, you mentioned the VIX. We, we track our panic euphoria model, which is more a proprietary model, looking at positioning. And we're seeing kind of neutral levels. Back if you went to January, everybody was really excited. And that's kind of fallen off with some inflation fears back in February. And investors now are getting buffeted, if you like, by concerns on, let's say, trade. But on the other side, they're saying, hey, earnings are pretty good. Buybacks are pretty good. So they're not that rattled. No. So we have this story where the Secular growth story holds up. You see that in tech where the earnings have been terrific. Tech stocks, all-time highs. The Nasdaq, record high. Small caps in the United States off the back of a stronger domestic economy. The Russell, an all-time high. So set me up for summer, Tobias. Your note this morning, tourists often head out for summer. I read that earlier in the week. Yeah, a lot of that had to do with we got this little fear last week around Italy and everybody kind of bolted from cyclicals. They, They backed off their financials as bond yields moved in kind of as a, as a function of the safe haven trade. So investors don't have great conviction in, in their positions. They The one area they do is in tech, yeah. where they feel very comfortable about the long-term growth story. But my only argument there would be, Everybody knows that already. You know, what's your incremental piece of good news that's going to drive those stocks even higher? You mentioned small caps. It wasn't a risk trade. It was a dollar trade. As the dollar went up, it kind of dragged the small caps up with them. They're, they're very sensitive to those currency moves. So it's not even that people are that excited about the small cap growth domestic economy story because I could have made that argument three, four, five months ago, and they weren't participating in the same way. So it's more a currency issue. <coughs> in general, investors have been – kind of looking for something right. that's going to get them really excited. You can't cough until John coughs, and he can't cough till I cough. <coughs> well, I think everybody <laughs> will cough eventually. Let's see. Yeah. I think everyone good. is okay. coughing in this Again, room. Again, if you can find me good allergy medicine, I'm buying that stock. <laughs> Tom, Tom Keane's got some good meds, haven't you? I have been. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, it's 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 Are good. those legal in this country? <laughs> yeah, yeah usually with onions in it and up, uh, shaking forever. Uh, uh, Tobias, when we look at the the spirit of the equity markets, there's got to be an opportunity. There's got to be a value. Which sector is the one where you go? You know, this hasn't moved like Amazon. Mm-hmm. There's a real opportunity here, either to make a total return or to protect myself if things fall apart. Which is that sector? So if, if I have to think about protect, they're a little different. If I have to think about protection, it's it's things like pharma and biotech, where they really drive to the beat of a different drummer, and it's a function of pipelines, FDA approval, those kind of factors. Um, they're they're defensive in a, in, a, in a generic sense, but they also have this kind of relationship to increased volatility if we get it. Um, on the other side, I think areas like energy have been left a bit in the dust here. Uh, people have, have very low conviction <clears throat> in the ability for the industry yeah. to maintain profitability. And at the same time that the industry 
can't actually put in more production in the Permian Basin right now because there's all these pipeline well, bottlenecks. Yeah, I mean, I, Wall Street Journal had a great chart on lumber today. I took it off the Bloomberg terminal and did inflation-adjusted lumber. And we're really very picky. Are we seeing a commodity turn, including oil, including lumber, et cetera? So I, I know that you follow Ed Morse's work pretty closely at City, and, and, yeah, and they do believe okay. that commodities are, are probably an interesting area to go. Uh, the one risk would be very powerful dollar that would hurt commodities. Um, we, we don't see the reason for a very powerful dollar. We also don't see a particularly great reason for for a horrible dollar either. So we're going to kind of trade around here, and that gives commodities the ability to uh, to continue moving higher. So we do like material stocks as well, but energy is one where I think investors have extremely low belief in a disciplined industry, um, which almost can't get undisciplined in its capital spending activity in, in Midwestern Texas, yeah. simply because they can't move the oil right now. Tobias, can we spend a little bit of time talking about another conviction trade, um, a sector conviction trade for a lot of people, financials, and it just isn't delivering. Um, you spent a little bit of time researching this over the last week, and I imagine over the last few years as well. Just why right. isn't that delivering? Why was it the story of 17 and right. not 18? So, so I think part of the reason for financials, and I can't necessarily tell you what everybody thinks, but I think part of the reason for financials is that um, it's viewed as an industry potentially under attack, similar to retail, similar to energy with technology changes. So fintech, the idea that you could you know, pay without using your credit card in some other system for whatever product you want to buy. That they're being bypassed. The same thing on the lending side. If you go to some of the, you know, crowdfunding lending um, alternatives, we think that's all fair and, and and dandy, and that people have this perspective. But the big story in our mind is a pickup that's coming in in commercial industrial lending that usually has about a six quarter lag from when you see a change in lending standards. So if you recall back in late in early 2016, rather. There was a lot of pressure around the energy sector causing disruption in, in credit markets. Yeah. And that showed up in terms of lending activity in the latter part of last year, six quarters later. That started inflecting in the first quarter, and we would expect a, a, a meaningful improvement in the next uh, couple, three quarters in lending activity for commercial industrial loans. And that's a function of M&A. It's a function of, of uh, major capital expenditures. They, you can't go out and borrow $10 billion in some crowdfunding aspect. You have to go to the syndicates at the banks. Is the tax plan a big factor in all of this? It, it, it helps at the margin. So one of the really distinctive and divergent trends was we saw in May, the senior loan officer survey from the Federal Reserve Board come out showing further easing in credit standards in an environment where we're seeing, wait a minute, but the Fed's raising rates, bond yields are higher, credit spreads have widened to some degree. Um, isn't that kind of the exact opposite direction? Yeah. Um, so what a lot of banks told you when they got the, the tax cuts was that they would use about half of the savings in the tax cuts to be more competitive and provide better terms to corporate lenders. And that's exactly what they seem to be doing. Tobias Lefkovich, great to catch up with you this morning. City's chief U.S. equity strategist with a cough like the rest of us. Yeah. With us, John Taft. He is vice chairman of Baird, among other services, working with RBC and, and Minneapolis shops before that. But much more also on his important book of X number of years ago called Stewardship, which, to give you perspective, Taft, the Republican, had a blurb from one B. Frank, Barney Frank. How did that come?
come about? How did Barney Frank, you know, you look at the back of the book and you go, Barney Frank's telling us, shut up and read John Taft. How did that happen? Yeah, he, and he wrote about how surprised it was that John Taft had something he felt worth uh, endorsing. Yeah, Actually, cool. it came about because uh, <clears throat> during the financial crisis, I testified to his committee in favor of a fiduciary standard of care for financial advisors providing advice to individual investors. What a shock. And, uh, well, when you say what a shock, but Tom, today, almost 10 years later, we're still debating whether that's a good idea. Why do we need a fiduciary uh, care act if we have prudent man rule for Mr. Putnam a few years before the tax well, ascended? Well, this has been the debate going on <clears throat> for the last 10 years. Here's what's what's happening today, though. We're in a good place. Anyway, that's how Barney Frank came to, yeah. came to know me, around the fiduciary standard. But what's happened is the SEC was given by Barney Frank and his committee the authority to write a fiduciary rule. They didn't. So then the Department of Labor under Tom Perez came in and wrote a rule that, quite frankly, I would think was one of the worst pieces of financial regulation to come mm -hmm. out of the financial crisis. That now has been thrown out by a court and mercifully... The SEC under Jay Clayton is stepping to right. the fore and, they're, and they've proposed regulation best interest, exactly what right. you're talking about, the Putnam formulation. Why do you need a fiduciary, a fiduciary rule if there's a regulation saying you have to put clients' interests first without regard to your own financial mm -hmm. situation? That's what the SEC is doing. The SEC knows what he's doing. And right. finally, we may get a rule that has a uniform and higher level of investor protection than we've had in the past. That'll be good for everybody, right. good for the industry and good for clients. I mean, you mentioned Jay Clayton, and he's I, we've had him in for interviews and also, of course, his work at the Economic Club of New York. And I would mention that Chairman Levitt uh, is a fan of what he sees in Chairman Clayton. And that speaks to normalcy within regulation, normalcy within Washington. And it speaks to a normalcy, which is the fabric of the Taft family, going back to uh, President and Chief Justice Taft, and frankly, long before that as well. Do you see a normalcy out there within political and financial America right now? I, I so I'm going to answer the question, yes, but. I mean, yes and no. So here's what I mean. If you look at the political uh, dialogue, the process, the dysfunctionality uh <laughs> At the highest levels of our political leadership, you would say, no, we are as far away from what my family represented in their six decades of public service as you can get. On the other hand, if you look at the actual policies coming out, in particular in the financial sector, so a year ago, Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin signaled what the Trump administration was going to do, and they've been executing it, and guess what? It actually makes sense. It's reasonable and appropriate. The pendulum of financial regulation swung much too far to the excessive side of the equation right. post the financial <clears throat> crisis. And now we're just correcting it back to a level that's appropriate. But you listen to the Elizabeth Warrens of the world, and it's like the end of Western well, humanity. I, I want to go back to incentives here, which is something you've had to deal with uh, across wealth management at RBC and now uh, with your stewardship at Baird. And, and that is the idea that I hear this from people all the time, and that executives today are so incentivized off of their income statement and off of profit 
that labor's not getting their fair share. Have we gone? Is the pendulum gone so far that executives are only representing themselves? The issue, and not the greater good. The issue that uh, financial institutions have been dealing with mm-hmm. since the partnership model went away, since people who own and ran financial services firm no longer had their own capital at risk is the agency problem, where there's an asymmetric reward system, i.e. the chance to make lots of money if things go well, but you lose nothing if things go poorly. That is the asymmetric compensation system that prevails today at Wall Street. One of the things that I've experienced recently, Tom, since I went back to work at Robert W. Baird, which is 100% owned by its employees, Mm -hmm. is having your own capital at risk again. And you know what? It makes a complete difference. Um, It's not reasonable to expect that today, but we need incentive systems that recreate that. Uh, With us, uh, John Taft of Minneapolis, of course, and uh, his good work. John Farrell, my colleague, really doesn't understand the Minnesota Vikings. So we have him reading, I Did It My Way, A Remarkable Journey to the Hall of Fame by Bud Grant. But within that, John, is the idea, John Farrell, that that London Global Wall Street is different. Do you, John Taft? Do you distinguish between how we're doing this in America, between what we're seeing in the city in London? I don't. I don't know the London environment. I can tell you that uh, how you do things in New York is different from the heartland. How you do things in the heartland. You asked mm-hmm. me that question on uh, on your show earlier today. In other words. Uh, we keep focusing on a half dozen financial <laughs> institutions based here in New York or in the major yeah, financial systems. We're guilty. There are tens of thousands of financial institutions across the country who uh, have their own capital at risk and who serve uh, it, middle market and individual clients. And that's the Wall Street that we don't pay attention John, to. Is that true in England? Is, 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 that, is it a London focus or is it just like Canada? More consolidated. I mean, there's very much a London focus in the UK yeah. across the board, and not just in finance. Um, that's been yeah. the accusation against the UK for ages. Just to wrap things up with you, John, you mentioned Senator Warren and her pushing back against a little bit of deregulation. To what extent is this still just a political football and about point scoring? I think it's entirely a political football and about point scoring because if you look at what's going on in deregulation, honestly, Jonathan, it is tweaking. It is not whole-scale scaling back, Dodd-Frank. And the tweaks are appropriate, and the tweaks will remove irritants and impediments to financial institutions doing what they're supposed to do, which is to facilitate economic growth. John Taft, great to have a bit of presidential blood around the table in New York City. Great great grandfather, John. Yes. Amazing. And he was also Chief Justice, John Farrell. This is a real distinguishing feature. Yeah. That's what he really wanted to do, but he did the... the, uh, the political bent first. John Taft, great to have you with us. Vice Chairman of BED, thank you very much. Shannon O'Neill has been wonderful on Latin American studies on Mexico, but much more on overall Latin America and some of the dynamics here. She is at the Council on Foreign Relations, where she is the Nelson and David Rockefeller Senior Fellow for Latin American Studies, and we're honored that uh, she can join us this morning. Shannon, is Brazil just simply the usual Brazilian politics, or is there something else going on this time? 
Well, good morning, Tom. Nice to join you. You know, I think it's a bit of both. There are particular things that are happening right now. We have seen some very serious strikes go nationwide. Truckers pull over and stop delivering goods to the point where millions of chickens were dying because there was no feed. Uh, airplanes weren't taking off because there was no fuel. So we've seen some immediate uh, disruptions in the economy. But it's also these bigger fundamental issues that I think investors are finally looking at, the ones you mentioned. And Brazil has incredibly high debt-to-GDP ratios. So as people look to rising interest rates in the United States and more globally, this is a country that's going to get hit hard. Well, Shannon, I think you, you bring up an important point because a lot of people look at Brazil and think that the story of the last 10 years was a commodity story. But actually, a lot of the growth came off the back of credit, didn't it, Shannon? It did. Credit was a big part of it. Consumption was a real engine for Brazil for many of these years. We saw throughout the 2000s, you know, 30 million people come into the middle class, start buying those first refrigerators and cars and other kinds of of appliances and the like. And now that has been fading. Um, So that engine um, was that dying was part of the recessions they've gone through. And the real question is, can they pull back out of it Um, and can they really restart that engine? His Trump trade action and discourse allowed an entree for China into Brazil or at the margin a greater China investment into Brazil? China has been investing in Brazil all along, but primarily in their natural resources, both in the actual resources themselves and then somewhat in the logistics to get those resources out of Brazil and to China. So you know, energy and soy and beef and all sorts of things to to provide for the Chinese uh, people, but then also their market. So that's really where they are thinking about investing. Um, But the fact that the United States is is closing itself and and going to more protectionist stance means Brazil has been looking elsewhere. They first have been looking towards their neighbors and to the EU. But if those countries don't respond, then they will look to China. Okay, but, you know, not that you're looking at the currency day to day on your Bloomberg app on your cell phone, Shannon. But um, I see see some dynamics in Argentina. We see the horror, true, you know, no jokes. I mean, of Venezuela. The stability of the region is suspect, to say the least. Is it business as usual in Latin America? Are we really waiting here for some exogenous or endogenous shock to upset this very large nation of Brazil? Well, this year in Latin America, two out of every three voters is going to the polls to elect a new president. And most of these are not going to be incumbents. There's not re-election. So it's new people coming in. So this is a really pivotal moment in the region. And as you mentioned, there are these big problems. Most of these voters are going to go to the polls for domestic reasons. So when you think about Brazil, they are going to go because they're tired of recession, They're tired of the corruption of their political class. They're going quite angry, and they're looking for someone to vote for as an outsider. And that is really the challenge, because Brazil, in order to manage it, in order to work with Congress to get the structural reforms that Brazil needs and investors want, things like pension reform and the like, you have to have this compromise. I think that, too, is why we're seeing the real being hit. People are looking towards 2018 for Brazil, and they're seeing more paralysis on the policy side. Shannon O'Neill with us with the Council on Foreign Relations. And, and for briefings on so many of these topics, you can really start with a website of Mr. Haas's 
Council on Foreign Relations. Shannon, you wrote a definitive post literally within the last 48 hours. Mexico knows how to fight a trade war. Does Mr. Trump know that? Is he aware that Mexico and, and their brethren to the north, the Canadians, actually may have a cogent and organized response to Trump's NAFTA discussions? I don't know if he was prepared for it, but I can tell you that the Midwest farmers and the ag businesses, they definitely know that Mexico and Canada have a few cards up their sleeve. And already we've seen Mexico step forward and, and target specific congressional districts and specific products. So it's potatoes and apples and cheese and pork and other, yeah. other specific <clears throat> products. So we're starting to see that. And you're going to see members of Congress Already, their constituents start calling them, saying, "Look, we we have these big tariffs on our products. Can you do something?" I mean, I mean, within this is is the age old question of now versus when you were first studying this years ago. And I go back again, folks, to a piece on mercantilism a few days ago from Catherine Rample in the Washington Post, and Catherine Rample makes a distinction of finished goods policies versus inputs policies. Describe your expertise, and you've written about this in your books, of the input back and forth at the Mexican border. Well, one of the interesting things that NAFTA brought about, which we don't talk a lot about, but it's not just that we import and export to each other, but what we're sending back and forth are what are called intermediate goods. So the pieces and parts that will come together to make a car or a plane or medical devices or a whole host of things. And that has allowed companies, often U.S. companies, but also Mexican companies, to create things that are better and cheaper and able to compete with goods from China or the Europe or anywhere else in the world. And these tariffs that Trump is putting in on steel and aluminum and perhaps the ones that come after, that is disrupting this process. And the challenge is it's going to make U.S. companies less competitive vis-a-vis the products that are made in, in places like Asia. And that is what is breaking down with these beginning tariffs. Your classic Two Nations Indivisible ends with a chapter which is deciding our mutual future. I'm not sure that the present administration has a mutual future with Mexico. Let's flip it. Does Mexico have a mutual future with the United States of America? Or is it just simply they don't have a choice? There is destiny in geography. So they will always be tied to the United States. But they will begin to pivot away from the United States. And we have, we'll start seeing that on trade. They just revamped and and modernized their trade agreement with the European Union. Um, They will start looking towards China. They'll start looking more broadly if we don't treat them well. And they, too, are about to go through an election in their country. And we could see a very different slate of, of bureaucrats and others that will not be quite as forgiving of the United States and some of our uh, eccentricities recently in terms of of rhetoric towards that nation. So I think we're going to see a real change in U.S.-Mexico relations going forward. Shannon, thank you so much. Shannon O'Neill, the Council on Foreign Relations at Rockefeller, senior fellow, really definitive on Mexico. And of course, on Brazil. It is a joy, as always, to have Ken Oletta walk through the door. Pim Fox in Orlando. I'm Tom Keene in New York. And he has a wonderful new book out on the advertising business and, of course, on media, which is, as we all know, exploding and blowing up in that. And it's a piercing read called Frenemies, the Epic Disruption 
of the ad business and everything else and the everything else we'll talk about. But on this historic day, taking us back to 1968, Mrs. Robinson was number one for Simon and Garfunkel in every single family in America in June of 1968, in the spring of 1968, was reeling is the only other way, Ken, that I can put it, including the Pim Fox family and the Tom Keene family, from the events of the moment. You were living them in real time as a young buck working for one Robert Fitzgerald Kennedy, weren't you? You were not in Los Angeles on this day, were you? No, I was at the old Shelburne Hotel and working for Bobby Kennedy and helping, working with others to help him be victorious in the New York State primary in a couple weeks after Mm -hmm. California. We had a meeting that night with his national organizer, uh, Jack English, and some others, and there were probably seven or eight people in the room, and we actually were worried Because despite the bump he was getting from the victory in California, we worried that he was being sandwiched between Gene McCarthy on the left of him in New York and Hubert Humphrey on the right of him with with regular Democrats. And we worried that maybe Bobby Kennedy couldn't win in New York. But we were going to organize like hell over the next two weeks. And we went to bed probably at 1 o'clock. And then we were awakened at 2 or 3 in the morning with the news. I take great issue with the way Robert F. Kennedy is treated in the movies and in the television today. Do the portrayals of Robert F. Kennedy capture the Robert F. Kennedy that you knew? Well, I didn't really know him that well. I was a I was in my twenties, and and um, I mean, I spent a a little time with him, but very little time. I think if I walked down the street, he wouldn't recognize me. But okay, but you, uh, you know, you were within the zeitgeist of it. Come on. Yeah, no, I I was I, I gave up a job to go to work for him, so I, I I believed in him, and and I some of it is captured. I mean, Tim Tim um, uh, NBC MSNBC. Tim Russett. No, no, Tim no. Russett, not not Tim Russett, but. Um, What's his name? Chris, uh, Chris Matthews, Matthews wrote a book, a celebratory mm-hmm. book about yeah. Robert. Uh, there have been other books. I mean, uh, the best probably is Arthur Schlesinger's biography of mm-hmm. Robert Kennedy. Uh, does he get the full credit? I don't know. I mean, uh, he, it seems to me he's an iconic figure today, and and in that sense does yeah. get the credit, and he should, he deserves to be. What was St. Patrick's Cathedral like oh, God. a few days later? It, it was actually amazing. It was it was mobbed. It was very very hot. And my job that day was to rotate every fifteen minutes the people who stood around the casket uh, of Bobby Kennedy. And I'll never forget it um, because it w- it was so stultifyingly hot. And and Prince Radziwill, um, who was married to mm-hmm. um, Jacqueline Onassis' sister, he came and he stood at the casket and a beautiful light blue shirt and suit and hair immaculately combed and within 15 minutes he had dissolved into sweat and and then we all left the church it was a very moving teddy kennedy gave a, a wonderful speech and we got on the train and went to washington and and as you sped by people on the amtrak train uh, sitting there people were just lined up thousands of people all the way down to washington on the on the train uh, beside the train tracks it's a moving day. Uh, Ken Arletta, uh strangely, I remember that day because my mother and father took me as a young seven-year-old uh, to stay in front of St. Patrick's uh, Cathedral on that Saturday. And uh, I remember uh, hearing through the doors Andy Williams sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. 
And uh, I'm wondering if you could just describe what that spring was like, because Martin Luther King had just been assassinated in April. Bobby Kennedy had only decided to run, I believe it was in March. Correct. And this, uh, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles was coming in the very, you know, late evening, early morning of, uh, of June, June the 5th. What was it like that spring? Well, you know, the, the thing you have to overlay uh, over all of this is the Vietnam War and, and the anger among the populace, not just at Martin Luther King being assassinated and then, of course, Robert Kennedy being assassinated, but this feeling that the country was being assassinated by this war where eventually over 50,000 Americans lost their lives uh, in, in a needless war. And people were protesting and people were angry, so angry at, at President Lyndon Johnson that he was, he was compelled to step down and say, I will not run for re-election. So angry that they, they allowed Richard Nixon uh, to win election over Hubert Humphrey. Uh, they were angry with Hubert Humphrey for supporting Lyndon Johnson. So it was, it was a country just split apart, much as it is today, uh, over you know, people who, who like Trump and people who don't. Um, so it was, it, was a, it was an uncomfortable time. And then, of course, civil rights. Um, and, and after Martin Luther King's death, it was, people were you know, protesting and angry. And, and then, of course, Robert Kennedy did this miraculous thing in Indiana where he stood up before a largely black audience and talked movingly uh, about Martin Luther King and his death and, and how the way to celebrate his life is not to destroy property and, and protest, but to, to join the politi in the political struggle to change America. Ken Arletta, you grew up in uh, Coney Island. You've described yourself as a semi-juvenile uh, delinquent <laughs> whose fastball, I believe, is what got you into State University of Oswego. Uh, do you miss covering politics? We're going to talk about your book, but do you miss covering politics? No, I, I don't. I, I love doing it. I mean, I have a graduate degree in political science, and I thought that would be my life. Uh, you know, in government, um, State Department, maybe foreign diplomat, um, and then you know your life takes these twists, and suddenly I'm writing about the media, and yeah. I love doing that. We're going to come back and talk. There's a lot. Of, there's some empty offices at State Department right now. <laughs> we we had a guest yesterday, Ken, who said Mr. Pompeo is so concerned he had to bring a third of the CIA over just to get through the coming weeks. It was so. Demanding. I would never get past Donald Trump. I don't. I, I'm just trying to think of you taking a meeting with the president of the United States. No, I've I've had my meetings did with Donald Trump when he was here. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, you know, very quickly here. What was it like uh, meeting with Citizen Trump? Well, Citizen Trump back in the in the 70s and 80s. Um, I remember writing a profile of Roy Cohn. Yeah, his, um, one of his heroes, his mentor, yeah. and and who was probably the single most uh, disgusting human being I've ever met. And and Donald Trump kept saying to me, he's my mentor, everything I learned from him. And what did he learn yeah. from Roy Cohn? Attack, never apologize, yeah. uh, sue the bastards, don't pay your bill. Pim Fox in Orlando, I'm Tom Keene in New York, and with us, Ken Oletta. The new must read, I will have to read it cover to cover, uh, very selfishly, because it's about the media business and about the ad business, frenemies. Frenemies, the epic disruption of the ad business. And Ken, I hit your world in your book three days ago when I had a bit part in the background on Billions, on, on Showtime, and the response from the family and you know people was, was stunning. I mean, 
all the rules are broken by Netflix, by Showtime, by HBO. Is that the, the beginning of the trend? And just simply, Kenaletta, with the frenemies out there, where are we in five years? Well, that's a really good question. And, and if I were arrogant enough to try and answer, predict where we'd be in five years. You wrote years, the book and you don't know. I don't know, nor is anyone I interviewed. And I interviewed over 450 people. Uh, the truth is, it's changing so fast. And people are throwing stuff up against the wall to see what sticks. There's a bet that, that the ads, which are, are deemed to be interruptive mm -hmm. and annoying, particularly on your cell phone, um, that what you have to do is don't do an ad, but do a service. So you offer someone something. Ken, we know you're walking by a Barney's. You know, we know you bought a sport jacket two weeks ago. If you walk two blocks to the, the Barney's now, we'll give you 20% off on your next sport jacket. And you say, is that an ad or is that an offer they're offering me, and it may be attractive. On the yeah. other hand, you may say, how the hell do they know so much about me? The arch theme of all the people you talk to in your book, including Sir Martin Sorrell and, and others in the ad business, is this bet and wonderment of what young kids will do. Old people watch old media. It's off a cliff with the young people. What will the young people do when they're older? Well, we know we don't know what they'll do with their older. We know what they're doing now. And one of the things they're doing now is that 20% of Americans, many of them young and technologically proficient, use ad blockers to block ads on their cell phones. We also know that people who have PVRs, according to Nielsen, 55% of them who record a program skip the ads. That's and they know we know they watch things like Roku and 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 Netflix and HBO. And Showtime, and Showtime that don't have ads. That don't have ads. So, and, and, and YouTube that often doesn't have ads. So, mm -hmm. so they're growing up younger people in a world where advertising becomes less important and in fact is perceived not as a subsidy for media, which it really is, but as an annoyance. Ken Oletta, uh, in the book, uh, you speak about really a lot of different conflicting emotions uh, that exist, and that is one of the things that advertising tries to do, which is to tug at people's emotions and generate emotions. Um, what, did, what emotions, what feelings did you come out of after writing the book? Well, I, I mean, I, I came out as, a, as I looked closely at, at the ads, so many ads, including the celebrated ads, the Super Bowl ads, or the, the Coca-Cola with little kids standing on a hill, which, which was the end scene of of Mad Men, the show Mad Men, uh, I, feel, I, feel, I feel they're emotionally manipulative and they annoy me. Um, on the other hand, there are brilliant ads. You go back to the Volkswagen ad that Bill Birnbach created or, or Levy's rye bread ads. Uh, they were brilliant ads. So there are brilliant people who do some brilliant ads and there are people, however, who, do, who try to emotionally manipulate you. And for me, I don't know whether I'm typical of the public, but it bothers me a lot. Are, are, are brilliant people capable of running these huge advertising slash media companies today since they have so many divisions with so many pieces? Well, it depends on what they're brilliant at. Uh, I mean, you take Martin Sorrell, who was, who in my last chapter of the book, I said, Mr. Sorrell, you're going to be 73. When do you think you might step down? He said, they'll have to shoot me to get him out get me out. And in fact, they did shoot him. And yeah. a couple months ago, he He's was... He's in the he news was, today, I should point out, where his old company, WPP, may go after him for setting up a new company because he's got some form of non-compete. 
But, you know, Martin Sorrell is a brilliant guy who created the largest uh, advertising holding company in the world, WPP. On the other hand, it's a company that owns 400 other mm -hmm. companies. He had no COO, so he had basically, you know, hundreds of people re basically reporting to. That's too much, even for someone as, as talented as he is. The nexus of Ken Oletta is a nexus of your, your present book, Frenemies, with Googled, which I, I think you sold a few copies of. I mean, it became a required read. Google has surged forward, and Google and Facebook and others are capturing the vast majority of the marginal revenue growth and profit within in the digital, industry. In digital advertising. How, do, how does the industry break that ownership of Google and Facebook in well, digital excellence? One of the things they're betting on is that Amazon, which appears to be entering aggressively the advertising business, will become a competitor to Google and Facebook and therefore giving them a little leverage over Facebook Is and Jeff Bezos a frenemy of everybody but the president? <laughs> I mean, the president thinks of him as an enemy, not you a You got frenemy. that right. Right, right. We know that for certain. Yeah, he, he is, they are. I mean, they're all frenemies. I mean, everyone is getting to everyone else's business. One of the reasons I came up with that title is that if, if you're an ad agency today and you advertise, say, on the New York Times or on Bloomberg, well, Bloomberg and the New York Times are in the advertising business, too. You're creating ads for clients and, going, and bypassing the agency. By the way, so are PR agencies. So mm -hmm. are clients who say, I'm going to do it in-house. And then the biggest friend of me, of course, as I said before, is the public. So it, it, everyone is surrounded by Jeff Bezos, if he gets into advertising, is going to go directly to, to clients bypassing right. the agencies. And by the way, Does competing against Facebook and Google. Do subscriptions replace advertising? No. And the reason they don't, uh, the one thing that Hillary Clinton and, and, and uh, Donald Trump agreed on in the 2016 campaign is that the American middle class and the working class, the majority of Americans, their income has been frozen for the last 10 years. They can't afford more subscriptions. The average subscriber in this country pays about $250 a month for subscriptions, and that doesn't include electricity and telephone. They can't afford it. Maybe we can afford more subscriptions, but they can't. Advertising is, makes things free. 97% of, of Facebook's revenues come from advertising. Almost 90% of Google's does. You're gonna, you think Facebook can get away with charging people? Mm. I don't think so. You started the book uh, with a, uh, a speech, really. You, you talked about a speech that the former head of uh, Mediacom, John Mandel, gave to a group of uh, marketers. Why did, why did you start there? I started there because for, for several reasons. One is what he was doing is, is basically laying out a speech of why clients shouldn't trust advertising agencies because they had secret agendas to make money at the client's expense. And that level of mistrust permeates the advertising marketing world. And I thought that was a way to crystallize that, which, which lays the groundwork for other chapters in the book where, where that mistrust plays a large role. The other reason is one of my major characters in the book is a fellow by the name of Michael Casson, who is the ultimate power broker in that world. Not well known outside, mm -hmm. but in that world, this charming guy who represents everybody, whispers in everyone's ear. Uh, because of a speech like Jonathan Mandel, a lot of agencies said we have to review, not agencies, a lot of clients said we have to review our agencies and maybe change our agencies. Who'd they hire to do that? Michael Casson. I mean, within this, as is, is we started this conversation, is where are we going to be in, in five years? Let's bring it even closer. Where are we going to be the end of the year? What are you trying to observe 
in advertising slash media that gives you the next marginal piece of information. Is it the Disney merger, the, the Disney Fox battle with Comcast? No, I think, I think the thing to watch for is what does government do? Um, mm-hmm. I, I think, will government say, we are concerned about privacy. We're going to, maybe we should copy what the European Union has done. In the well, Mike Allen countries. and Axios says today, uh, Facebook's playing with fire with this Chinese uh, data issue. They, they certainly are. And, and that's mm-hmm. part of the, so one question is, will they do something about privacy and the, and the amount of data that companies like yeah. Facebook and Google can collect. Secondly, will they say there's a monopoly yeah. issue here? I mean, here they are going after AT&T on the monopoly issue. They shouldn't be allowed to buy Time Warner. Mm-hmm. Well, should should Facebook be allowed to yeah. purchase a company like Instagram that, that basically is a threat, yeah. potential threat to their business? You can't let a, out with frenemies. I will read it cover to cover, the epic disruption of the ad business. And uh, Ken Oletta, thank you so much today for your comments on uh, RFK as well on 50 years on from an assassination in uh, Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.